Welcome to Paranormal Pioneers with Ross Allison and David Weatherly. Hi, and welcome everybody. We're so excited to do our another show here on uh, Paranormal Pioneers. And uh, I, I just wanted to let everybody know I got a really nice package in the mail today. Do you know anything about, about this, David? Uh, I can't imagine what it was. Oh, it's actually your book. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I got a nice copy of your book in the mail today. So I was really excited to see that, the Eerie Companions. Uh, so, well, I, wait a minute, Ross. Now, I, I actually sent that package to Mr. Creepy. Oh, so. <laughs> so you might have an issue with him. Oh, yeah, he's going to turn me in for opening up somebody's mail, right? Uh, that's, that's right. He probably will. But uh, no, in all seriousness, yes, absolutely. Uh, my pleasure to send that to you. I, I appreciate um, you know getting to tell Mr. Creepy's story in the book and including some photographs that I took at Spooks in Seattle with some of the haunted dolls and, of course, the, the back section of the book list uh, some places around the country where people can visit these uh, creepy dolls and i was happy to feature spooked in seattle in, in that section as well that was great it's a beautiful cover as well i'm kind of jealous i didn't get to do it this time <laughs> <laughs> oh my my cover artist i have to give him props his name is sam sharon uh, he's from the uk originally and he does just incredible work he really does. And they, it's a funny story for those who haven't seen the cover of this book. It, it's very, very light colored. It's, it's, you know, white tones. And, of course, other people have written about creepy dolls, and, and they put these books out usually with a, a dark black cover and things like this and try to make the doll look as creepy as possible. And when I, when I pitched this to Sam, I said, look, I want something very different. In fact, I want you to do this cover in, in very, very light tones. And, uh, of course, initially he said, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I'll see what I can do. And the guy's brilliant. Uh, has, as you see, he came up with something that is really light in color, but it, it gives such a creepy effect. And it's exactly what I, I wanted. I tried with this book to do something that, no one else has done, and I go in depth uh, about the his, the weird history of dolls. They're used in magic and ritual, and a whole range of other things, all the way up to present day. And of course, uh, an entire section on many of the famous and some not so famous haunted dolls. And and, and I know it's 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 an interesting you know history when it comes to dolls because when we did the book haunted toys. We didn't get to touch on a lot of that. Uh, we focused on just the toys themselves, but you know, just going into the history of a lot of this, it is very creepy and and very mystified when it comes to a, a lot of these, the history of a lot of this. Yeah, ab absolutely. And uh, you know, a, a lot of it I knew from some of my background studying different uh, traditions, but even some of the things I uncovered, you know, during my research of the book, it was just. Uh, and I'm not afraid of dolls, but, you know, reading some of this stuff, thinking, oh, boy, I can see why people find this creepy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when's our next book coming out that we're working on? So, well, I mean, you and I have a couple of things in the pipeline. I, I've got some solo projects. I think you do, too. But we've got another book coming up soon in the Haunted series, and that's going to be Haunted Churches. Uh, I'm just kind of waiting for some material from someone uh, to finish filling that out. But I, even before oh, that, 
Now you've thrown me that, under man. the bus. <laughs> even before Mr. Creepy will drag you out. Uh, even before <laughs> that, uh, we have another book that is a uh, collaboration, and it is The Paranormal Files, West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, with three authors, uh, myself, you, and also Dave Spinks, who's a native West Virginia uh, gentleman. And it gave us a chance to explore some aspects of the state. I, I know that you wrote specifically about a lot of the haunted universities that you've had experience with in West Virginia. And uh, Dave wrote about one particular town uh, in West Virginia that's notoriously haunted. And uh, so did I. I. I wrote extensively about Harper's Ferry. Right. And I have to say that, you know, that, that chapter was very challenging. I thought it was going to be a piece of cake. You know, when you threw that at me and said, hey, you know, why don't you talk about some of these colleges that you spoke at and got to investigate? I was like, yeah, sure. So I thought I had about maybe, you know, five, you know, campuses that I could talk about. But then that turned into like, I think, eight or nine campuses with extended stories because some of these actually went into true murder cases, which made that into a more challenging story to write about. You know, oh, yes. You, you really got thrown down the rabbit hole with that. Or, or it's West Virginia. I guess you got thrown into the holler as say, <laughs> uh, with that. But, you know, I, I was reading through some of it prior to, to sending it to the editor. And uh, it's just fantastic work. It's, you uncovered some really great stuff. But uh, it's cool to get to explore sort of isolated topics in a way sometimes, which is what we've done with this Paranormal Files book. Uh, you know, three isolated topics in the state, and it really is only scratching the surface of an area that is, like most of the world, I think, is is filled with strange things, and it's very intriguing. Yeah, no, it, it was a lot of fun. It's always fun working with you, so I'm really excited about that one coming out. But on that note, I think we should get ready for our speaker for the night. We got Dale coming up after the break. David Weatherly presents Eerie Companions, A History of Haunted Dolls. Dolls. The very word conjures a range of thoughts and emotions, from comfort and happiness to terror. Most often, dolls are thought of as companions for little girls. But why are they considered prime targets for dark forces? And why are so many of them believed to be haunted? As part of human culture for thousands of years, dolls have been used in magic, ritual, and healing even attempted murder. Now, step inside and discover the fascinating history of haunted dolls. Eerie Companions, A History of Haunted Dolls by David Weatherly, published by Eerie Lights and available now on Amazon. You're listening to Paranormal Pioneers with Ross Allison and David Weatherly. All right, well, we're... Really excited to have you, Dale, on the show. Uh, as I, I've stated in the past, you are one of the true paranormal pioneers. I know you've been doing this since the '70s, and I couldn't even imagine what ghost hunting is like in the '70s. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what got you into this field. Well, most people that I've experienced and I've talked to and I network with often have the have had something in their lifetime, either their childhood or something that got them interested in the paranormal. Unfortunately, I had a very uneventful childhood. And uh, it really got me involved in uh, 
ghost research and paranormal investigations is really my parents and my grandparents telling me uh, ghost stories when I was a youngster. Uh, my parents are Polish. I'm Polish. Grandparents are Polish on both sides. I'm pretty much 100% Polish. And when they told me these stories, I was five, six, seven, eight years old. My mom and dad, when they were growing up, dating in the 1930s and early 1940s, uh, there's a very famous story in Chicago about a hitchhiking ghost called Resurrection Mary, one of the most famous ghost stories as oh, far yeah. as a hitchhiking ghost story. Um, and my, my dad, I guess this is the side of the family I'd kind of take after, he was the kind of the ghost hunter, if you will, in the group, in, in, in the family, because he wanted to not necessarily just hear the stories. He wanted to see for himself if there was really something to it. So after he would take my mama to a movie, a dance, a theater, wherever they went, it was always his notion of just driving around the cemetery in the middle of the night, two, three o'clock in the morning, looking for the ghosts. What's <laughs> Much, much, much to the chagrin of my mom, who was absolutely <laughs> terrified about this. And so these are the kind of stories I uh, grew up with. Of course, my, my parents you know, grew up with uh, initially old-time radio shows, set in front of an old tube radio before TV became popular and just scaring each other to death. And these were the kind of stories and you know, kind of the, uh, the atmosphere that I was uh, introduced as a very young child. And, as I grew older, I just wanted to see if some of these stories that I had been told as a youngster were, you know, urban legends, old wives' tales, just, you know, just not true. And I began to research these stories, and it just kind of expanded from that point forward. It's kind of putting out little feelers uh, back uh, when you used to send out snail mail for everything before emails uh -huh. were around. Put a stamp on there, open the P.O. box. You know, uh -huh. where I live, and just kind of, you know, just put a little blurbs in newspapers, which is pretty cheap back then. Send me your ghost stories. And uh, people, I was really amazed by the ton of mail I got from just people from all walks of life all across the country. So in 1977, we started a group called the Ghost Trackers Club. Uh, it was myself and Martin B. Ricardo. Uh, we were just a bunch of like minded people that had an interest in, the, in this field. And it just kind of went on from that. I spent about five years as a research assistant for the group. Uh, did my first presentations back in the early 1980s, my first television shows. And then about 1982, I took over as president, changed the name to Ghost Research Society, which is a bit more indicative of what we actually do, ghost research. And uh, now we travel all over the country pretty much all over the world, doing investigations, very uh, scientific investigations, and uh, it's been great. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, uh, I, I remember <laughs> the uh, Ghost Research Society quite well, Dale. Now, I, you know, Ross calls me an, an old man in this field because I started <laughs> doing it in the 70s, but I, I was, you know, you've got a few years on me, and uh, I know that I can remember being a young man and and finding a little classified ad or something for the you know join now the Ghost Research Society. In fact, I still have somewhere I've got to find this thing the membership card <laughs> that you guys sent out. And okay. you know a lot of this stuff is just uh, I think in a way foreign to people today because everything's online. It's it's all the internet. But 
you know, you were one of the, you guys were one of the early groups doing a, a newsletter and networking in that way and kind of getting the information out to people and everything. And I, I think that's really cool. I, in fact, I posted, uh, I don't know, several months ago, a, a picture of some of those old newsletters because I still have them all. And, and uh, tractors newsletter. Yeah. 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 Wow. And it was, I, I remember just how, how cool it was to get that, you know, every month and read input from other people doing what I was doing. I, I was in North Carolina at the time. Of course you guys are, you know, you're Chicago based. And, you know, back in those days, it, it wasn't like it is now. You couldn't, now you can go online and there's, God, there's hundreds of ghost, you know, hunting groups everywhere. But back in the day, there just weren't that many people. And it's just, you know, just a, a comment on, on, you know, giving you a note of respect for what you guys did early on. Uh, but actually, what I'd like to cycle back around to for a moment is Resurrection Mary, because I think oh, yeah. that's a really fascinating story. I've always been very intrigued by these hitchhiking ghost legends that are, uh, you know, I've, I've seen them all over the world. And of course, Mary's story is probably one of the oldest, and it, it seems to be a real convergence of maybe ghost story, maybe folklore, and, and a combination of other things. And in fact, in fact, Ross and I were up there. Was well, that I was a year just going to say, Ross, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, we went to Resurrection Cemetery and went to some of the sites. But uh, you know, for people who, by some chance, who aren't familiar with the real uh, roots of the story, can you just tell that for us? Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, Resurrection Cemetery, Resurrection Mary was the first ghost story I was ever told as a youngster. Because, again, going back to my parents and grandparents riding around the cemetery in the middle of the night. So these, this was, a, you know, very, very early on, you know, probably in the, uh, the late 50s and early, early 1960s, I, was, I first heard the story. And I go, whoa. I said, you know, if, 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 if a Adults are chasing this around. This has got to be a true story because the adults just don't do that kind of stuff. They're supposed to be respectful and set an example for their children. So the story initially started way back around 1933 of uh, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Polish-American girl named Mary who had went to a dance at what was then called the Willowbrook, excuse me, the, the O'Henry Ballroom, uh, named for the O'Henry Candy Bar. It's now called the Willowbrook. Brook, and unfortunately, about a couple of years ago, it burned to the ground. It's not going to be rebuilt. Oh, too bad. But the uh, reports of her initially going to this dance with her boyfriend, uh, you know, if you, if you go by the story and the different legends, they say that she got into an argument with her boyfriend. She began to hitchhike back home along Lonely Archer Avenue in the middle of the night, back to the Bridgeport area, where, the, you know, where at one time the uh, Mayor Daly used to live in that very uh, kind of fashionable neighborhood. And somewhere along the Ray, somewhere along, you know, Archer Avenue between what used to be the Willowbrook Ballroom and the main gates of the cemetery, she was struck and killed by a hit-and-run car. And a few years after this, people began to see what they describe as a flesh-and-blood woman, long white dress, long blonde hair, blue eyes, Perfectly solid, not scary, very beautiful, in fact, hitchhiking along the road. And there have been literally thousands and thousands of ports since the latter 1930s. Uh, cab drivers, you can go to my website, you can actually read an article I posted up there from the suburban trip. A cab driver who picked her up in 1979 was totally lost, did not know where he was. 
saw this girl standing in the middle, standing along the road uh, in the middle of winter, not at all dressed for the weather. He rolled the window down, asked for directions back towards the airport, offered to give her a free lift, not even put the flag up, and away they went. Uh, she was not at all helpful with directions, but as they got close to the cemetery, she suddenly yelled out, screamed out, stop, this is the place. And when he turned around to see what she had meant by that statement, there was no longer a girl in the back seat. She had simply vanished. Uh, the cab door had never been opened. The cab was still in motion going forward. and. Uh, he was at a loss for words, so he spun around, thought she might have fallen out of the cab. No girl anywhere to be found. He went to the nearest place that was open at that time, was today is called Chet's Melody Lounge, right across the street from the cemetery. Went up there and had a few stiff drinks to uh, calm his nerves. <laughs> and uh, there have been just so many stories of, of women seen along the road, uh, running out of the cemetery, running towards the cemetery. Jerry, Jerry Palis in 1939 was the very first person that claimed to encountered her uh, near another ballroom called the Liberty Grove Hall near 47th and Mozart in Chicago. Uh, this was in uh, late 1939. He danced with her the entire evening, which is kind of an unusual ghost story. You think that ghost stories are pretty much like maybe a kind of a fleeting glimpse, a fleeting image. This went on pretty much all night. Later, she asked for a ride home, gave an address, address in the Bridgeport area, but wanted to go down towards the cemetery along Archer Avenue. And Jerry obliged. As they got close to the cemetery, she told him, stop the car. And for some reason, I have to get out. You can't follow me. Jerry's scratching his head, trying to figure out what's going on with this strange woman. Before he knows it, he jumps, she jumps from the car, runs towards the main gates, and disappears in plain view of Jerry before she ever reached those gates. Uh, so there's been uh, one other quick story, August of 1976, back on August the 10th, a man traveling by the cemetery saw what appeared to be a girl locked in the cemetery after hours. When the justice police responded to the call, and this was actually on, uh, you remember the old TV show, That's Incredible? It was actually on That's Incredible. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And, um, uh, he claimed that he could try to find this girl shining a spotlight, calling on a loudspeaker, no, no, no answer. He looked at the bars shining his flashlight, and several bars were pulled apart and bent. You can go to my website. You, you can actually see a video from this, from that time period, a video that was shot in 1976, and also some interesting pictures. Now, these were not just bent, but they were scorched. And within the scorch marks, the appearance of what appeared to be fingerprints and skin texture as somebody as though somebody had seared their handprints into the bars uh, wow. throughout the years cemetery tried several different ways to cover them up first by blow torching them then by hacksawing them out putting them back in welding them back into place painting them different colors and uh, we just went by there just uh this past july uh, first first saturday in july july the uh, 6th here and uh one of the bars is missing. I have no idea what's out of what's what's that what, 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 why it's missing or where where it went to. Uh, wow! But it's it's if we could have lifted the fingerprints from the bars and compared them to persons either living or deceased, well, how do you explain that if fingerprints on a bar match the dead person? I mean, right, that exactly. would be pretty amazing evidence. But. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting stories. I mean, in my book, Windy City Ghosts, it's one of the largest chapters in the book of uh, just dozens and dozens and dozens of reports 
uh, some very unique, some very interesting, some one-of-a-kind stories. Yeah, I remember when uh, me and David went there, and we, we actually, we think we found the spot where the bars were. Um, that was one of the things we looked for. And you could see that it almost looked like they, they had been bent by hands when we checked it out. But, you know, we may not have been at the right place. We didn't have you to, to guide us along the way. But. Well, I always tell people if you're looking for where the bars are, there's a gate going in and a gate coming out. As you come out of the cemetery, you look to your right because the, the bars, the gates kind of fold into the cemetery. Right. You'll, and you'll see two bars that are not original. In other words, they were hacksawed out, welded back into place. And you'll actually see the area uh, where they're welded onto the cross member. Uh, right. these horizontal cross members where they're rusting away, they're peeling away, they're kind of just uh, the welds cracking. Those are the two suspect bars. Wow. No, they, they were no, they were not bought by a man in Canada for a hundred thousand dollars, and they're just collecting. <laughs> and they got all these different things that I've that I've had to deal with here in Chicago. But if you actually look at the bars, look at the pictures that people, and you can you can just Google it real easy. You'll find all kind of pictures of these bars. Compare them to the actual video I have from 1976, from August, and you'll see those are the same bars. Even to this day, they're the same bars. Wow. wow. Well, we have plenty of photographs. We'll have to compare, Ross, to see, uh, to make sure we were at the right spot. I'm pretty sure we were uh, from so. Dale's description. Yeah, right. and it, right. it was, uh, I remember noting that there were bars that seemed to have been replaced at some point, so that that would coincide with what he's talking about. You know, you know, it's really cool to hear the story from you because obviously it's been passed down from generation for you. But um, you hear so many different versions of these stories, and you know, even so many different versions of the other encounters that relates to Resurrection Mary. And and it's kind of interesting too. One of the things that they also talk about is you know that she was buried in the cemetery too, and you you go looking for her tombstone. And I don't think we were able to find her tombstone. Right. Because uh, initially there, there are several possible resurrection Mary candidates. Uh, the very first one that, was, uh, that came out in the local um, uh, uh, Chicago Tribune was an article uh, dating back to 1983. That's 50 years after the death of a woman named Mary Bergovi. Now, I think Mary, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, Mary Bergovi right. was the very first one that was put, uh, put forward as a possible Resurrection Mary candidate. She was, in fact, uh, killed as they were ballroom hopping between one Chicago ballroom and another. But she was not killed along Archer Avenue, as the story goes. She does not have long blonde hair. But she did, as they were traveling down um, Wacker Drive by Lake Street, there's kind of a dangerous S-curve. They went out of control a little bit too, too fast hit one of those elevated L-track supports, and she was thrown through the windshield and died on impact. The wow. article goes tremendous detail about where she was uh, buried, section MM, the plot, the grave number, the Satella funeral home where she was involved, what she was wearing at the time, um, a white dress, dancing, uh, dance shoes, uh, a little swalk sink with cocktail purse, a shawl draped, uh, draped around her shoulders, uh, the people in the car, the, the the address of her home, the address of the people that were in the car. I mean, it went through all this detail, uh, and even about two weeks later, pictures of her began to circulate in the newspaper 
that showed Mary Bergovi. Uh, but again, we don't know for sure. Uh, there's been a few other names, Anne Norcus, Mary Rajinsky, uh, a few others that also seem to be from that time period that uh, young women in their 20s, some as early as 13, which I don't think would actually fit her profile, and some with blonde hair, some that died in traffic accidents. So because it's a large Polish Catholic cemetery, uh, there's probably hundreds of thousands of possible resurrection Mary candidates <laughs> in there. Mm -hmm. True, true. Um, you, you know, Dale, having researched the case for so long, what's what's your personal opinion at this point? Do you think one of those candidates is likely Mary, or do you think it's someone who hasn't been discovered yet? Well, I mean, initially I felt very strongly it was Mary Bergobi, even though uh, you know it doesn't seem to match the the legend of where she was allegedly hitchhiking for rides, struck and mm -hmm. killed along Archer Avenue. But she is buried in Resurrection Cemetery on the 79th Street side in Section MM, like M&M. Right. Uh, the interesting thing about that, when she was buried there, you'll actually, if you can search around long enough in that area, you will find some Bergovi graves. Um, and you will actually find one that says Mary Bergovi, died 1922. We probably think that that's her mother. The one directly next to it would have been the Mary Bergovi, who died in 1933. And that gravestone is missing because a lot of people, after that article came out, as you might imagine, went out there uh, in the middle of the night, perhaps. Some even tried to, believe it or not, dig her up to oh see, if she still had, to see if she still had the shawl, she still had the purse, the dance shoes. And I'm thinking, well, right. that's kind of just stupid because you're thinking about an apparition. You're not thinking about a walking corpse that's walking around. Right. <laughs> so if you go to the... If you go to the cemetery officials and you say, well, where is Mary Bergovi's buried at? Uh, you better be able to prove that you're related to the Bergovis because they won't tell you that information. In, 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 uh, the family has told them not to give out that type of information. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I actually have a question for both of you, uh, being that you guys, you know, are familiar with what it was like in the 70s. What was, the, what was ghost hunting like in the 70s? Uh, quite a bit different and quite a bit random. Um, <laughs> today we have, uh, when I first started out, let me go back a bit. When I first started out, my entire arsenal of ghost hunting tools consisted of a 35 millimeter camera, sometimes loaded with high speed film, sometimes loaded with an infrared film, uh, a cassette tape recorder. And my only EMF meter I had was a compass because basically a compass will point to north unless you come in contact with a very strong magnetic field, in which case it would deviate left or right or whatever. Uh, uh, so back then, you, unless you had somebody to kind of point out what, where the area was, like maybe a professional psychic or a medium or something that would kind of narrow down, you were just taking random pictures here and there, you know, doing, you know, EVP sessions on, on cassette tape recorders and then playing it back and see if anything showed up. Of course, you know, down the line, eventually they began to, you began to pick up pieces of equipment, but they weren't what you would call, uh, and I hate to use this term, ghost hunting tools. It's like you know, you've got a gun and you're out there hunting for ghosts. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, those types of tools, but they had other purposes. They were like adapted to them. They were like, even the, the K2 meters and, and some of the, 
the cell sensors and other things like that. They're really meant to, to give you readings of dangerous EMF fields in your home and not to track down spirits. But we used right. those at that right. time, kind of adapted them to our purposes. Now, however, uh, everything and every, you go to a lot of different sites from digital dowsing to uh, uh, Ghost Stop or, or uh, Pro Measure or whatever different places. And I'll hear little plugs for the people. Maybe they'll give me some free equipment here. <laughs> uh, uh, you can actually find tools that are specifically designed for ghost research and nothing else. And they're specific, that's, that's their purpose. So that's mildly refreshing to see that because now you have devices that you can actually hear the ghost response in real time. Uh, ghost boxes, ovaluses, mini portals, uh, uh, Phasma boxes, uh, Joe's boxes, Frank's boxes, all these different boxes that you can actually right. hear allegedly the, res the response, which is um, great because you can hold the conversation. Back then, typically you would ask a question, you leave some blank space, you'd ask a question, leave some blank space, and then maybe a week later you play it back in your home. That's not a conversation, it's kind of like a, like a one-sided conversation. You don't hear their <laughs> response. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a challenge back then. Uh, like we hear with the other people on the on your side, but it's pretty much a challenge for me, uh, much uh, much uh, back then than it is today. Oh yeah. Well, what about you, David? What was it like for you? Well, you know, uh, similar to what Dale's talking about. I mean, when I when I started, uh, my arsenal was very small. I had a had a little camera. I had a reel to reel recorder which was my, you know, big first piece of equipment to capture EVPs and, uh, you know, a, a pad in the pen to do client interviews and, you know, the, uh, of course, the famous baby powder that was oh, useful yeah. now and then to, you know, see if you could detect any, any movement of objects and things like that. So, you know, it was by necessity a very simplistic approach because, this was, in many ways, a relatively new thing, even though, of course, there are, you know, uh, longstanding routes to paranormal investigation. But the way it was opening up in the 1970s and the 1980s, it, it was very different. It was very new. And I, I think there was a different sense of things being experimental, uh, more so than there is now. Uh, simply well, because so many groups now, they, they over, you know, there's, there's positive sides and negative sides about all the tech that we have. I, I absolutely love all the different devices and everything uh, because it, it offers us a wide range of opportunity to capture evidence or, you know, see, well, maybe this works, maybe this doesn't. But what happens is a lot of these teams get together and they overload themselves with tech to the extent that. You know, everything's a, a bell and a whistle and a light. And the problem is, is that a good portion of these people, they don't really understand what that equipment does. Absolutely. Uh, and, there you, uh, go. you know, this is this is a, a major downside to that. They don't even think about that. Oh, well, I got this new, you know, X5 T7 and, and it's got, you know, 30, <laughs> 37 lights on it. And it makes a noise if something goes by and all this. And I'm thinking, 
okay, it, you know, you got something that looks like it came out of Ghostbusters. That's great. Strap it on your back. But tell me, what exactly is it reading? You know, what what is right. the basis for this evidence that you're collecting? And what, you know, kind of, hey, what's the point, you know, if you don't understand? Right, well, that's, right. that's one of the main reasons I, I wrote the book called The Field Guide to Ghost Hunting Techniques. Which is mm -hmm. one of my one of my better selling books, actually. Uh, kind of show people how to use the equipment properly. You know, tried and true techniques that work well for us. Not saying we're the only way to ex to experience the ghost, but things that seem to work well for us. Yeah, you know, there are very simple things that I see on TV all the time. Even, and I won't even mention the TV show, but you know which ones I'm talking about. They're on every single. They've been on for. 12, 13, 14 years. They basically walk around with a digital recorder in their hand, which is All one right. thing you should never do because it imparts sound to it. You put it on a, on a level surface. You see people with non-contact thermometer guns trying to pick up cold spots, which is basically a contact reading. Right. You see people right. walking around with trifold <laughs> meters in their hand, waving them around wildly, and oh yeah, the meter's going off like crazy. Uh, you know, so many of these devices, unfortunately, people, like you say, don't understand what they're doing. They show very bad methodology or protocols going off by yourself. Like I won't get, I'm not going to get in any trouble with any group, but telling somebody go in this, go in this room by yourself, <laughs> go in this floor by yourself, and just sit there. <laughs> You just don't do that. It's for safety, number one. If you're in a big building like that, 270,000 square feet, you fall down a set of stairs, you might be laying there for hours before somebody finds you. And exactly. if you see yeah. something, you got another set of eyeballs, just not yourself. You got a, a partner with you. So, so many of those things on TV, which is really kind of irritating to some way because Number one, it does bring a lot of new, fresh blood to the paranormal. It has increased these ghost groups 10, maybe 100-fold since I've been doing it. Oh, but yes. they also show very flawed techniques, which people then copy because they right. see it on TV. Well, if it's on TV, it's got to be fine. It's got to be you know, the right way to do it, and it's wrong. And I always tell at my workshops, I say, Without saying names, they say, you don't do this, you don't do that, because it's just, you're making yourself look bad. It's like with the idea with the orbs. Everybody's coming out with these orbs and say, oh, they got to be ghosts. Or no, they're bugs, they're insects, they're dust particles. There's, you know, there's so many different explanations for orbs. So, right. uh, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, it all goes to the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of this changed when ghost hunting came about when you were talking about you know some of the old school ways that you guys used to ghost hunt you know that's the way i was introduced to to myself and that didn't change until you know at least until the ghost hunting shows came out when all this other equipment started coming about because i was pretty much doing it the same way you guys were doing it we didn't have that many options the only thing that was added to it was emf detectors and those came out when you know cell phones started to become popular because they wanted to see how much you know emf was going into our brain when we were talking on phones yeah Right. Yeah, but you know, Dale, Dale hit on one of the things that probably annoys me most in terms of the, the downside of all the shows, and that's that we've reached a point with the field where people actually, uh, uh, they don't have a solid foundation going into this. And, you know, when I got started, and I'm sure when Dale got started, it was from, it was from hearing the stories and then going out and doing solid research, uh, you know, yourself, you had to 
you had to read, you had to learn. I mean, for me, I, I've always uh, just been a, I, I read constantly. And when I was young, you know, I read everything I could get a hold of about the paranormal. So, you know, whether it was books about ghost stories or experiences or whatever. And, you know, from all of that, I, I developed a foundation to go forward to understand, okay, this is what I'm looking for. These are different ways to look at it and so forth. And, you know, now we have people whose credentials consist of having seen every episode of Ghost Hunters or something. And that's, right. you know, that is not a foundation for being a solid investigator. It's, you know, regardless of what you think about the shows, positive or negative, they're kind of part of our, you know, subculture, if you will, at this point. But people tend to forget that they are entertainment. And yep. there are, you know, yep. things that you just can't translate <laughs> to the here and now in terms of investigation. It's kind of well, like... It's kind of like reality TV is what I call them because basically it's not the the sure. true aspect of what ghost research is all about. I mean, it, they're there to to entertain and to show people that this is how we do stuff, but it's not always necessarily how it's supposed to be done. I mean, my biggest problem is you know today. You know, I won't say for all groups, but I mean you know a lot of groups. They'll start off, you know, because they've seen something on TV or maybe they read a few books or maybe went to a conference or two and they want to have a ghost hunting group. So what they do is they, you know, they, they, they get themselves a website, they get themselves a little, you know, kind of a, you know, tricky little name, uh, maybe a couple, you know, get, get some T-shirts made out with their ghost thing. A <laughs> oh, yeah. You're a ghost hunting group. Well, see, when I started, I mean, I worked for five years as a research assistant from 1977 to 82. And I was learning as I went along. I mean, I, I wasn't by far just jumped into with both feet like a lot of people do. So I always tell people, if you really want to get involved, you really want to do it correctly, join a well-established group that has good credentials. I don't consider anybody an expert, including myself. I always like to say it's people that have Great. have more whiskers sort of speak than anybody else. Well, I, say, I say it all comes from experience, you know? Don't just go after somebody who ghost hunts maybe once every six months. You go for those people that are out there maybe every weekend, you know? It's all about the experience. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if you, if you follow somebody, if you, if you necessarily you know, follow somebody, but if you're involved with their group, you learn from them, you learn the proper aspect, Aspects of of ghost research, how these equipment works. I mean, the, the the craziest, most weirdest thing is basically to go to a, a a private home or a private client that you got, and all of a sudden you got a bunch of people saying, "Wait, what does this stuff do again? What's that piece of a?" And the client's sitting uh -huh. right there, and they go, "Whoa, what?" Right. <laughs> you know, right. so you, you don't want to get into those types of avenues. And I always we <laughs> always train our people from 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 you know. I just started, we just got a, a brand new guy that just joined the group just this last Saturday, and he's never been on a ghost hunt before. So he's going to get trained from, from the get-go on all the different aspects, including EVP, equipment, writing up reports, analyzing evidence, you know, all the, the whole ball of wax and working with all different aspects of uh, people in the group and all different types of equipment until his knowledge is, you know, formidable. Right. And... and you know, this is the whole reason why me and David put this show together is because, you know, we're seeing a lot of these problems. And, and the biggest problem is, is, you know, like you guys said, that you get all these no-names 
who all of a sudden have a television show and it's like who where did this person even freaking come from and yet there are people like yourself dale that have been out there for 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 decades doing this and you don't get the recognition you deserve and this is why you know we really want to get the word out there about the people like yourself that have been doing this before the television shows and, and let people know that there is a lot more to this field than what you're seeing on TV. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you've seen the amount of TV shows that I've actually turned down uh, because of their format, because of reading what they expected from me, and in some oh, cases yes. wanting me oh, yeah. to, to fake evidence, and I will yep. never do that. I don't care how much money you throw on the table. That goes right to your credibility. I mean, once you begin to fake evidence, you're known for that forever, and then you're always tainted by that. And uh, we, we just got involved with negotiations for possibly a show coming up that might be just about our group, and we're in negotiations right now with that. We may not even be selected, but you know, my, my, my standards are very high before we'll get involved in something like that. And I want to read everything all the time. Uh, make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed before we, we get involved with something like that, because it leads right back to the credibility of your group. Right, right. Yeah, I've, end, I've ended a lot of conversations with production companies simply by informing them that I won't fake evidence for for the show, and that uh, you know that often is a deal killer with some of these right. these guys. Right. And uh, you know that's that's fine with me. I have no interest in in doing such a thing, but. Uh, to take kind of a different track, you know, having done so many investigations, Dale, uh, tell us about maybe the one that really sticks with you the most, something that was, uh, you know, so significant that you were left with a real feeling of, wow. I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> and it's really hard for me to figure out one. I mean, I can maybe tell you a couple that very briefly that, that oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a kind of a time. wow kind of a wow factor because I, I've been doing it for 44 years now. I've investigated more than 4,100 cases, and not every single case, obviously, is that that showstopper. I mean, some can be very boring. Some you don't sure. get any evidence at all. You know, much uh, much not unlike these TV shows that you get something every time you go out. That's also an expectation that you shouldn't have when you enter into this field. But there are a couple that come to mind, uh, uh, one that we actually were doing a television show for the Discovery Channel called Real Ghost Hunters, and that probably came out, I believe, in the early 19—mid-1990s, uh, actually. We were investigating a private home, and I can tell you the name because it was on TV, but it was in the home of Danica Faye, and she was in Chicago, and she was having all kinds of experiences from— uh, uh, the lights going off and on, the dogs and cats reacting very strangely. We know that animals react strangely sometimes in haunted homes. Uh, mm -hmm. We also, She also woke up in the middle of the night sometimes to see a man standing in her doorway in a blue uniform uh, with gold buttons right down the center. Almost looked like a Civil War soldier. Uh, she had her legs pulled in the middle of the night. Somebody screamed in her ear. Uh, it seemed to happen mostly to her. Her husband was kind of oblivious to this. Maybe he was a total skeptic, or maybe he had experiences, and he always just kind of brushed them off. But anyway, we go there with the show, and the, you know, the idea with the show wasn't expecting to have anything happen there. They just wanted to see how we do stuff, how we set stuff up, how we gather equipment. We got all the cameras and monitors. We got 
infrared cameras upstairs. We got equipment up there. We're watching it down in the command center on TV monitors. And then all of a sudden, nobody's upstairs. And all of a sudden, you hear footsteps and you hear dragging, shuffling sounds. Now, the producer, who was a female producer, if you ever get a chance to watch that show, we're able to track it down. You'll actually hear a very nervous a female producer saying, Dale, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. I, first of all, this is not something that the client had ever reported. This is something new. So this is like a spur of the moment thing. We weren't really prepared for it, but we were recording it. We had an oscilloscope. The oscilloscope's bouncing like crazy. So basically the cat's not upstairs, the dog's not upstairs, nobody upstairs. So eventually they stop. I send two researchers up there to look around for a possible explanation. All the windows had been closed. The air conditioning was shut off. The ceiling fans were shut off. This is the middle of July. It was hot in this house. They didn't want any external noise for the cameras. We could not find any possible explanation for it. But I told uh, the people when they were up there, kind of walk around and shuffle your feet. See if that made the same sound. We compared it. It was identical to that same sound. Now, we went on throughout the late evening a little bit longer. And uh, uh, what one of the we had three people. We had a producer, a, a cameraman, and a sound man. Well, the sound man was a big skeptic. Every time something happened, oh, it's not. So we put the wireless microphone upstairs in the bed, and he's listening to it. And I always told Danica because it seems to react with her a lot. I said during our investigation, once in a while, just kind of call out to the spirits. Maybe they'll interact with you, and we'll get something. And she had a very high kind of a squeaky voice. So unbeknownst to us at the time, she kind of opens the door and to the, to the, uh, the stairs going up to the bedrooms on the, on the second floor where all the equipment was set up. And she kind of goes, hello. And the guy with the sound had his earphones on and he got as white as a ghost because he <laughs> it was the real ghost. And I said, no, that's just Danica. And from that, the rest of the time, he completely shut up. He didn't say anything more. So that was kind of unique. But I'll tell you the one that really got to me here recently. We were in a place called Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in yeah. Western Virginia. Oh, yeah. I've been there three times. Every time. The first time we were there doing the walkthrough, it's 275,000 square feet. The second biggest building in the world next to the Kremlin. It's just huge. Even with 60 mm -hmm. people, you only had 12 on each floor, you know, concrete floors, concrete walls. You couldn't even hear the other people in the other sections of the wings. As we're walking through, we picked up and heard nine disembodied screams down the hallway. People actually were walking down there and they reacted to it. They turned around, what's that? Wow. Well, we got to the point, we went to one area. This is a true story, by the way. I've heard on both times we were out there, there was a patient named Ruth. Now, Ruth was a female who did not like anybody who was male, doctors, orderlies, patients, visitors, whatever. So she would throw her food at them. She'd throw her, her TV tray at them. She, she'd cuss at them. She'd try to throw her cane at them. Um, so myself and three female members of my group, and that's very important because I was the only male, Went to an isolation cell where they kept on patients not too far from where this, where Ruth had been experienced in the past. And suddenly, you'll actually see the video on, on, on the YouTube video, which is linked to my site. Uh, my whole 
arm just got freezing cold as though somebody had put it into a freezer. All the hair was standing up, all the bumps only on one side. Now the other three females with me, they felt nothing at all. That was unusual. And then all of a sudden, you'll actually see me grab kind of my left butt cheek because something grabbed my left butt cheek. You can actually, I felt like a whole <laughs> just kind of grab on and I go, whoa. And it was, I was great. I wasn't, you know, I was, it's, this is what I live for. You know, so I. <laughs> I Getting groped by a ghost, right? <laughs> Getting groped by a ghost. So yeah, you can see that the other three females, I'm not feeling a thing. There's, I don't even feel a draft coming through the door, anything. They've got their meters are going around. They're trying to pick up temperatures, nothing. So we had an obelisk going at the time in, in, uh, in phonetic mode where they can form their own words. And I asked the question, do you want us to leave or do you want me to leave? The one word came through, you. And I go, okay, fine. So, I mean, I, we were just kind of crowding our space and we kind of moved on. But, I mean, I could cite other examples. I mean, I, I haven't been touched that often in 40-some-odd in, uh, years. I've, I've only been touched maybe eight or ten times as compared mm. to the TV shows that you're touched every single week. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's not that common. All right. Real quick, um, let's take a break. David Weatherly and Ross Allison present Haunted Ships and Lighthouses. Dangerous, mysterious, and fascinating. The waters of the world are a focal point of countless hauntings, from ghostly ships that sail long after their physical forms are gone to phantom lightkeepers who continue to guard dangerous coastal waters. Join David Weatherly and Ross Allison as they delve into nautical mysteries and explore some of the world's most haunted ships and lighthouses. Haunted Ships and Lighthouses is available now on Amazon, it is the continuation of the Haunted series, which also includes Haunted Toys. You're listening to Paranormal Pioneers with Ross Allison and David Weatherly. All right, well, welcome back with Dale, you guys. We're really excited about this. He's been telling us some amazing stories and experiences. Um, in fact, uh, since we're talking about some of your experiences, um, I know one of the most places you're most uh, famous for is uh, Bachelors Grove Cemetery. I know that's one of your famous haunts. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, Bachelors Grove Cemetery is uh, perhaps the first, in fact, it is the first location I ever investigated uh, as a paranormal investigator. It was one of those very obscure locations, uh, sort of out in the middle of the uh, Cook County Forest Preserves, which was really kind of hard to find unless you know exactly where it was. But uh, initially, it was on a, a road called Bachelors Grove Road. And when they closed off that road decades ago to put in the turnpike, they just kind of bypassed it. So it kind of looks like the, this uh, cemetery is out in the middle of the woods. Now, it wasn't always like that. It was right on the main road at one time. But the cemetery dates back to the 1830s, uh, founded by a group of immigrants from Germany and, and Ireland, some from Bremen, Germany, henceforth the name Bremen Township. And many of them were, in fact, bachelors. They bought uh, acreage out there for about $1.25 an acre. So consequently, a lot of them had hundreds of acres of land. It was very cheap at that time. And around the 18. 30s, they began to bury their 
their uh, their loved ones in a, in a location that later became known batch as Bachelors Grove. Now, the Bachelors Grove, the deed actually from Bachelors Grove probably didn't come until around 1864 by a man named John Everdeen. In fact, at one time it was called Everdeen Woods. And this was there towards the end of the Civil War, so it kind of shows you the you know, how old this cemetery actually is. There's, there's graves dating back to the 1830s, however, long before the uh, incorporation of the cemetery. But this location is uh, probably the most haunted cemetery I've ever been into. And I always like to preface cemetery haunts by say, stating that usually cemeteries are not good places, in my opinion, to look for ghosts. There's really nothing... Uh, in theory, that would draw a ghost back to where its earthly remains are buried. I mean, there are some examples. Grave desecration, uh, digging up graves, uh, satanic rituals, flooding where, where bodies are washed away from the graves, things of that nature. And, and this cemetery has several of those instances, including satanic worship. So usually cemeteries are peaceful places to be. Bachelors Grove has many other things going for it, including the evidence uh, we've been trying to track down specifically dates and times, but there's been some um, well, speculation that in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, members of the Capone era would have been dumping bodies out there in a small lagoon, which uh, actually is right along the edge of the one side of the cemetery. Uh, there's also been tombstones thrown in there. There was illegal firearms found out there. In fact, one one uh, somebody actually found an old uh, revolver rusted away to nothing in the, out in the middle of the woods. So a lot of that stuff uh, goes way back to that time period. This was a German settlement, and they've set set aside about an acre of land for these people to be buried in. But ever since the uh, Oh, I wouldn't say maybe the 1950s or uh, early 1960s has been known as one of the most haunted, haunted hotbeds of activity uh, in the Chicago South and Southwest Side. There were many graves gruesomely dug up in 1964, uh, satanic worship in the late 60s. And there have been so many different reports, including a phantom house that people have seen out there. It looks like a real house with white wooden pillars, a port swing. As you get closer, it's not there anymore. It just disappears. Other people have seen ghost lights, spook lights out there, red balls of light, blue balls of light that simply simply just kind of dance around the graves with apparently some intelligent control. You reach out to touch them, they disappear. You turn around, they're behind you. Uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, there have been reports of multiple apparitions uh, in the cemetery, including a farmer and his horse dragging a plow that actually was seen emerging from the lagoon, crossing the middle of the turnpike and disappearing in the Rubio Woods by two Cook County Forest Rangers one evening on routine patrol. They never officially reported that, uh, probably because of fear of being laughed at or ridiculed, uh, or maybe being passed over for promotion. I mean, who knows what? But they told me the story. There's also a woman that's been seen nightly, in, well, almost, almost monthly, I should say, uh, during, the, uh, during right around the full moon. She's seen in a white dress, carrying a child in her, arm, uh, 
her arms, an infant baby. Wow. And uh, she's been seen kind of like a, it's kind of a, a hazy figure. Now in 19, um, oh, 1994, we were out there doing an investigation during a daytime investigation. And everybody was given a map of the location, told them to go through and uh, in teams of two, write down what you, what you pick up, what you feel, whatever equipment might go off, uh, take pictures, and then we'll compare them you know, as everybody comes back to see what areas people got feelings for, what the equipment might have fluctuated. And there were two or three locations in the cemetery that multiple people seemed to kind of ch check on their little map. So we went back to those locations and we did some additional experiments. Uh, some one woman has uh, this was back during the time before digital. This is 1994, so we are all using 35 millimeter cameras, and she had uh, in her camera. Um, and I basically told her how to do this and how to properly develop the film: black and white, high speed infrared film. And infrared film actually can pick up things that the normal eye can't see, mostly heat, but sometimes. And in many cases, figures. If you go to my website, I have a whole section of spirit photographs. A lot of them are from the early uh, um, to mid, late, mid to late 1970s when I was using a lot of infrared film. Uh, she took a picture there, saw nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, in infrared film, you have to develop. So about a you know, week later, she looks through it, didn't really see anything, and put it away. And about another week later, she's looking through it again. And she sees a little small figure sitting on one of the tombstones. As when she enlarges that image, sends it to me, and I was it, it, it knocked my socks off because it was actually a semi-transparent figure of a woman sitting on this checkerboard's tombstone with no name on it, so we don't we can't identify who she is. In profile, you see her long brown hair in a in a white gown down to her ankles. Now is this the same? white lady in white as people have been seeing all these years. Of course, nobody in our group was dressed in a white gown in the middle of August. We were all wearing shorts or blue jeans or, or uh, uh, you know, just short sleeve shirts. Nobody was dressed like that. Wow. And that it is was, a, a very famous it, photo, too, if you look it is a, online. It yeah, is. It's an amazing yeah. photograph, and it's been circulated around the Internet for many years. It was actually shown on in Chicago Sun-Times and Tribune. I had an article about that. I did a Discovery Channel segment uh, for Discovery Channel called Phantom Photographs. Uh, the interesting thing about that, and that's why I put so much faith in this photograph, this is before digital. We actually, right. have, a, I, we actually have a negative. So we that's can check awesome. the negative, and the negative can never be tampered with. I mean, you can always take a picture, even from a negative, put it in their Photoshop and add something. But if you go back, the negative will always be untouched. Right. And, that, and that's, that's one of the things that I've always tried to push in this field is the fact that, you know, we've moved to the digital era and we have forgotten the old school way, you know, film and cassette tapes. And I really feel that we might be missing out on some of the phenomena because we are no longer using those tools. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you remember the very early EVPers, uh, Dr. Constantine Radeve, Professor Hans Bender, uh -huh. uh, Phil Philip Jorgensen, uh, Sarah Estep, uh, Tom and Lisa Butler, uh, many other people that were pioneers in their field. What they used back then was uh, 
these kind of bulky reel-to-reel tape recorders. Yeah. Uh, basically using what they call what's called magnetic recording tape. And the idea for these EVPers is that a lot of times the reason you weren't hearing the response that you got from a spirit is that some say that they were actually bypassing the physical microphone and actually physically imprinting on the magnetic recording tape. Because if you yes. go by the theory that ghosts are made of energy, mm -hmm. they can imprint directly on that. So if you're using even um, an open reel, using a cassette, uh, I still have an old school uh, camcorder, Sony Nightshot, that uses yeah. the high that uses the high eight, which oh, is yeah. still right. magnetic recording tape. I refuse to go into the the hard drive cameras or the or the um, uh, the the disc cameras. You can actually record on the mini disc because you can still get a e true EVP on those things. Right, right. Well, and a lot of people don't realize too that you know, as popular as the digital recorders are, they also have filters that will filter out a lot of sound. And, you know, sometimes uh, that's the last thing we want to do to a certain degree. So, you know, I remember the first EVPs I captured were with a reel-to-reel -reel recorder. And in short order, I, I did start using a cassette recorder and uh, still use one today on, on occasions because... I find that it's just uh, it's it's an old school tool, but it still works really well. Yeah, it's going back to the analog, you know, long before yes. we had yeah. that digital stuff. Because now, basically, everything you, the, the, the digital files is basically just a series of ones and zeros is what it is. Pretty much, it's a computer computer generated image or computer generated uh, sound. And what I always like to do sometimes is, like you say, go back to those old school things because, uh, you know, I mean. Even employing what I used to do back when I first started, too, was using the old Polaroid cameras. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, give you that instant picture. This is long before the digital. Right. The bam, sh you know, comes in 60 seconds. You, know, you can look at it and whatever. And we got a lot of strange images sometimes on that type of film. So, you know, there are certain types of film uh, that are very sensitive, like infrared film is sensitive to the infrared spectrum. You have that what you call Tri-X film, uh, the black and white high speed, was, it was kind of sensitive to the UV section, the ultraviolet section. Mm -hmm. Now, many of these cameras, uh, and many of these filmmakers like Kodak, and I would use mostly exclusively Kodak film back then. Later on, I went a little bit to Fuji film. But Kodak uh, recommends when you shoot infrared film, especially black and white, to use a number 25 red filter, which is supposedly to, to stop certain wavelengths from hitting the... the uh, the emulsion layer of the film. Uh -huh. But by doing that, are we restricting that wavelength that the ghost is actually in? Right. And, and in essence, not actually photographing that spirit at all. That's the same idea when you're talking about using filters and so forth. I don't use, I, I would never use filters on any of my cameras because I wanted the entire spectrum of light to hit the film, both visible and invisible. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, it's 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 fascinating, you know, how far or how much we've changed in the field of ghost hunting, and it's all because of technology and and also due to the expense. I have a feeling that a lot of groups out there wouldn't be out there ghost hunting if they still had to use, you know, film and tape cassettes because it would be expensive for a lot of people, and a lot of people in this field don't seem to have a lot of money. But uh, 
I, I really wish that we would actually bring back some of that stuff because I'd like to see what results we could still be getting. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, you know, I shot so many, so many rolls of uh, infrared film when I was using my 35 millimeter camera. I have all the negatives. I have all the film strips still here. Um, so this is just one avenue uh, that I think should be brought back. I, I, I don't know if you can actually purchase infrared film anymore. It's um, becoming obsolete. Yeah, yep, it's nearly it sure. Is. You yeah. can, there might be a few uh, places that still might have them, but you got to be very careful when you get the film from them because if they package it, it should be packed in coldness because it's very sensitive to heat. So if it sits in the the uh, the, the uh, post office for two or three days and the heat is going to fog the film and you're going to have damaged film before you even load it in your camera. Yes. Uh, so it's very sensitive. I always always made sure that I went to the uh, local, uh, used to be able to find local camera stores. You can't even find those <laughs> anymore. Right. Uh, I would make sure that when I said I want a roll of infrared film, I made sure that I saw them, they'd take it out of the little refrigerator in the back. Because if they didn't, I said I didn't want it. But sometimes they'd be on the, on the shelf bargain film like a dollar for a roll of film i said well that's that's that film is no good no bargain to me <laughs> right yeah camera now, stores have gone the way of uh, radio shack oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. now I, I have to ask what was your average you know cost to do an investigation back then yeah oh geez i mean you figure i mean you could get initially eventually you could get like maybe uh three cassette tapes for a dollar or something like that. And then maybe a roll of film would be, um, I don't know, I'm going to say, you know, under $10, probably right, even right. less than that, maybe even $5. You know, that's, you know, it was mostly, it was more expensive to develop the film than it was to buy the film. Yeah, right. At one time, as they were starting to phase this film out and people, it was just starting to make the move to digital where everybody, hey, want, they want that instant picture. Uh, it was becoming harder and harder to find places that wanted to develop that film because to develop that film, uh, normally when you, when you develop film uh, in, in, a, in a dark room, you can have a red light in there as a, as a safety light. Um, but you can't do that with infrared film because that, that's infrared light that's coming out of there and you have to develop that film in total darkness. And a lot of places just didn't want to use that. They had to use an expensive process and in some cases, I, I remember one time I, I went over, we were doing an investigation. We shot a, a whole roll of film. We, we sent it in. And every single picture came, it was completely blotched. It was all black. Oh, and I man. Said, what happened to the film? I said, obviously, it looks like he damaged. He goes, well, we're going to give you a fresh roll of film to compensate for you. <laughs> I said, well, what about all <laughs> the stuff I could have had on this roll? You know, I just yeah. like, irritated right. me. Mm -hmm. But uh, you kind of hit on something, too, you know, Dale, is that. Uh, I think today, so many investigators, they do want that instant satisfaction. So yes. we've got digital recorders, uh, we've got digital cameras, you know, and everything is, is so much right there in the moment. Again, this is sort Even of the equipment uh, too. programmed from, from watching television that, you know, there's a small number of people now who go to a location, investigate, collect evidence. And then go back and, and pour through all the data and everything they've collected. It it's they consider it too time consuming. You know they're they're worried about oh what's the next 
demon we can go find somewhere <laughs> so you know that's uh that's kind of the sad re reality of of where a lot of the groups have come at this point but i know you know you guys you have a very specific process when you undertake an investigation is that correct Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, everything is very highly, highly researched before we go to a location, uh, you know, talking to, you know, people that uh, may have been there before us. Uh, usually, if you go to a well-known spot, I mean, for the most part, you're most likely not going to be the first person there. Uh, so you might talk to other investigating teams of what they've what they've experienced, what areas that they might have had success with. Not that you want to go right straight to those locations. You want to be, you know, all over. But you kind of research the area as well. Um, we get to location. Obviously, if it's a big location like, say, Waverly Hills or Trans-Allegheny, it's really kind of hard for you not to know what's going on before time because you could spend three days going through the whole building to try to find where the hot spot is. So you kind of have to know that this is an area where, things have happened as this hallway, this room, whatever, and kind of just go from there. And then if you get things from other locations, that's always a bonus. So you kind of sit, you kind of go through and what we normally do is we kind of go through and try to get baseline readings uh, for a, a specific site, uh, what might be a, a normal as far as EMF range. Uh, if there is a high level of EMF, then we all often look for you know, what's causing it. Uh, is it some old BX wiring inside there that's creating that? Is there some other uh, outlets or something that are maybe, you know, just shelling out a tremendous amount of electromagnetic frequency that we're going to have a problem with? And we also, believe it or not, we check into, and most everybody that I've seen today uh, has some, something, a little, a little thing on their website that they can check how the solar flares and magnetic properties out there in the sun. Uh, if we're into it, a solar prominence, if there's going to be a lot of a, a cosmic rays hit inside there, uh, if you're using Geiger counters, if you're using other things that might pick up that, you may want to know that ahead of time before you go go into an investigation because you're always trying to rule out things that that you can debunk to begin with. Once you eliminate all that, what's left, you know, could be simply paranormal. So then we go through and we'll try to get baseline readings. We'll try to uh, uh, set up cameras down hallways, uh, in some cases have them hooked back to a command center where we can actually watch them in real time. Uh, we'll set up devices, or what we, sometimes we call them traps. You know, they can be things like REM pods, they can be things like uh, uh, laser grids, uh, uh, different types of uh, uh, devices that pick up both heat, cold, radiation, smell, and everything. Uh, we have, actually have a hydrogen sulfide detector that actually picks up the scent of rotten eggs. And oh, wow. Rotten eggs is often, well, sometimes considered to be something maybe not so good. Um, so we have these things all kind of set up. And then we kind of go, you know, place, place to place uh, with our team and try to do uh, EVP sessions and experiments with some of our devices like the SLS camera. Uh, things that picks up the stick figures and other devices, and what we try to do a lot is to do these uh, to do these uh, uh, locations with uh, devices that can actually pick up the responses in real time. Uh, the obelisks, the ghost boxes, the mint portals, the uh, phasma boxes. Uh, 
we work a lot now with a with an application called Fasmabox. Uh, and at first, you know, I, I was very skeptical because of an application, but we have gotten just tremendous full sentences coming through this device, uh, and it's just amazing. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you two quick examples. Uh, we were actually um, in a place called the Elgin Casket Factory, which is set up kind of like a one of these scary walk through haunted houses for Halloween. And they had kind of a, a, a fuse box that was there for effect. It wasn't hooked up. It had no power going through. One of my other investigators was using the SLS camera, and they saw a stick figure holding on to that fuse box. You know, and I see it on the screen. So I said, okay, you're playing with that fuse box. You turn one of those switches on there, turn it off and on. There was a short pause, and then a voice comes through that says, it doesn't work. Huh. <laughs> well, the fuse box was a fake fuse box that was disconnected. Wow. That knocked my socks off. We were also in a place called McConaughey Cemetery. And by the way, you can see all these if you go to my website, McConaughey Cemetery in Goshen, Indiana. Uh, there was a cemetery that basically that had no tombstones. It just had a sign. It was woods. There was no markers. And we asked the question, well, how many graves are buried here? How many people are buried here? And it said more than 100. So, you know, when we get direct responses like that, and not just a word, I mean, a whole sentence coming through here. I mean, it really, um, what possibility is it that you're going to get that exact same response? Because uh, I know some of these actually use what they call internet radio, sound banks, reverb, echo effect. You're going to get that same sound bank coming through when you just ask that question. It's, right. uh, it's very, very unlikely. Wow. So I guess that goes to one of my questions I had is, what do you feel is the most important piece of equipment for a ghost hunt? Um, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I got so much. I got about $13,000 worth of ghost hunting equipment I uh, yeah. <laughs> that I've collected throughout the years. I mean, the most expensive one being the SLS camera. That was $1,200 by itself. Right. But the, uh, uh, I don't know, I think the SLS camera is, is an interesting device. I and mean, you can actually find that a little bit cheaper if you go through some other ghost hunting uh, websites. You can probably get it for about two, 250 to 350 It doesn't have all the features the digital dowsing one has that I, that I picked up. But the idea is it's using the Connect system, uh, basically infra, uh, infrared invisible dots very, very tightly mapped together. So you're actually mapping out a location. And if something shows up that we can't see and maps out that area, you'll actually see it like a stick figure. And we have had uh, stick figures um, doing things that were kind of unnatural. Uh, we were in a, um, a prison one day, and uh, we, we showed, put the SLS camera, we pasted it into one of the jail cells, and uh, uh, you know, there were three female investigators outside doing an EVP session. And all of a sudden I look at the, uh, there's a stick figure inside behind the jail cell. And, uh, well, I don't want to get too graphic, but he was uh, pleasuring himself. And wow. so I go, whoa, that's kind of weird. Uh, so that's a pretty interesting piece of equipment. Uh, one of my favorites, though, is the Trifield Natural EM meter. Uh, Trifield natural right. meter. Uh, you won't see any TV people ever using that. 
And why? Because it hardly ever goes off. But if it does go off, it means there's usually something there. It's not affected by internal AC fields. So you don't get anything coming through uh, uh, light sockets, light switches, fluorescent lighting, uh, anything natural. You cannot pick up an alert. It has to be something beyond that range. Right. Yeah, and I, that's one of the other devices I see misused quite a bit if they do ever use it on TV. So, yeah. Well, they uh, they often use the, the lesser one. They use the uh, Trifield 100EX. Uh, and if you look at if you look up that, uh, uh, if your listeners want to look up that Trifield EX after the show, you will actually see that that device it specifically states can be affected by internal wiring in a home. Right, right, right. It specifically says that right there. So basically, if you got a home that's got OBX cable, it's got a, if you're very close to a fuse box or electrical outlet or something, that thing is going to go ding, 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 like it's alerting to something, but it's <laughs> something that's not a spirit. It's a natural phenomenon. And that's why I use the Trifield natural EM meter. Right. Now, I have a question for you. Um, being that you've been in this field for as long as you have, who were some of your idols as you were getting into this field? Oh, well, I had I had a few. Um, I had uh, Brad Steiger. Uh, Brad Steiger wrote about 60, 65 books in the field. Amazing, uh, I, man. I, 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 yep. met him, I met him on one occasion uh, doing a conference out in Baltimore. I got a chance to meet him, shake his hand. Uh, I actually met um, and uh, uh, spoke extensively with uh, Dan Aykroyd. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, Mr. Mr. Ghostbuster. Uh, yep. he, had, he had a TV show that was coming out called, it was going to be coming out called Way Out. And the very first segment, the pilot segment was going to be on Ghost, and I was going to be in the pilot segment. They, they filmed 12 segments, and then they threw everything away, and they, he didn't like it, and it never went any further. Uh, I... Uh, I actually met a couple of other people that I had great respect for, including John Zaffis, uh, um, 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 the guy from Destination America, Josh Gates. I've actually met him on one occasion. The one guy I was I was very influenced by too when I was uh, starting this field was a guy named Hans Holzer. Oh yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> and Hans Holzer probably wrote more than a hundred books on the subject, and. Uh, Never had a chance to meet him. I did meet his daughter, though, Alexandria Holzer, at a conference mm -hmm. one year. A uh, very interesting person. Um, but he's, he's kind, of, kind of the granddaddy of the paranormal. And I actually did meet Ed and Lorraine Warren on yep. uh, one occasion, too. So, uh, you know, they were very big in the paranormal as well for many, many, many decades. Yeah, Hans Holzer was certainly uh, – I, I did meet him before he passed away. And uh, he was certainly one of the early – uh, writers who just man he put out a, a lot of material and uh of course probably like me you probably devoured all of his books when they came out uh you know and and he kind of uh, pioneered some of the investigative techniques in a way which which leads me really to a question that i had you know hans holzer would utilize psychics on many of invest many investigations and uh i'm curious how much or what's your experience with using psychics has been like? Yeah, his favorite two psychics were uh, Sybil Leake and Ethel Merman. 
yeah. uh, uh, that he, he used quite a bit. Or Ethel, excuse me, Ethel Myers. Ethel Myers. Myers yeah. Ethel Myers. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, we're going well, into Broadway now. Right? I, I was going to say, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a different investigation, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but one of, his, one of my favorite books by him, it's a very hard book, is called Psychic Photography, Threshold uh, of oh, Science. Yeah. I got a hardcover for that. And he actually used infrared film uh, using older cameras, uh, older 35 millimeters, older box cameras and so forth. Mm -hmm. And he got some really crazy photographs inside that, um, uh, that book. Um, my, only, my only issue with him is, is that a lot of the, lot of the stories, uh, he didn't get very specific. So he would say, I'm investigating the home of Mr. T at in Cleveland, Ohio, or Mrs. N in San Francisco. So he really couldn't really do much of it uh, as far as searching in for that. He was more into private homes at that time rather than going into public places. Mm -hmm. uh, but his techniques were really well. He did use psychics uh, quite often, and they gave him another avenue. Uh, to explore. Not only was he doing his own investigations, uh, again, probably not using any equipment back then, mostly just cameras and maybe some recording devices. Uh, but so that was another way for him to kind of, in my opinion, narrow down where he was going to place his cameras and shoot, or in fact, to do a record through the session. They didn't call me. Well, they might have called them EVPs. I think EVPs coin was came out came out after him a bit yeah i think so at the end of that but it was, was again capturing spirit voice because the whole idea of, of evps was was quite by accident if, if you remember how it happened it was philip jerkinson right. who was out there trying mm -hmm. to capture bird songs yes in a field and when he played these bird songs back he said i got voices here too in, in an open field he was the only person <laughs> where these voices yeah. come from right. so he was using psychics as as a as a as a piece of equipment, so to speak, you know, basically saying, okay, you show me where you feel or you see or you sense, because sometimes they were clairvoyant, sometimes they were clairaudient, and show me where I should set my my gear up, my cameras, whatever. And he was able to get some really incredible photographs. Yeah, I think my first book that I read on, on Ghost was uh, one of his uh, psychic photography. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we now now occasionally we we do use psychics in our work, but normally not during the initial investigation. Uh, uh, when we go into a, a home, uh, a business, a public place, um, especially uh, mostly say a public place or a public, I mean excuse me, a private place or a private business. Uh, initially, when we go in there, it's kind of, kind of like a fact finding mission. We're trying to go in there. I've already interviewed the people person so i kind of know what's going on but i bring my team in completely ice cold in other words right. no, none of my team members have any idea what's going on except they're going to a place that's allegedly haunted they don't know uh where we're going they don't know you know any of the phenomena any what what rooms it is they just go in they break up in teams of two uh and they try to figure it out by using a, what i call a three-step process uh, step one, they just go through and they gather evidence using their own senses, equipment, using maps. Step two, we'll sit down. They'll tell the clients what they experienced, and the clients will tell us, which is the way I'd want it. I don't want the clients to influence what they say, my team. 
So we right. say what we picked up first, and the client will come back, and I already know what the client told me. So if the client embellishes, then I'm, then I'll know. Right. And in step three, we just, we sit, we'll set up equipment at those locations that are hot spots, and do EVP sessions, do communications, and so forth. Now, where a psychic might come in later on is that if the, the people that are living there feel that they can't live with this thing anymore, it's really so terrifying. And that's usually not the case. Most of the people I've investigated, they're more curious of what's going on. They want to uh, have somebody come in and say, well, you're not crazy. You're actually maybe are experiencing something. Uh, and then maybe they'll say, okay, well, I think we know who it is. It's Uncle Joe or Aunt Betty. And we're just happy to leave them here. Don't leave, don't bother them. And thank you so much. Goodbye. But in some cases, they're pretty terrified about what's going on. Not often, but sometimes. And that's where a psychic might come in because that's where we kind of like step aside a little bit and let them do their thing. You know, communicate. You know, one on one, telepathically, clairvoyant, figure whatever, and try to convince the spirit simply to move on. Not doing any of the crazy stuff you see on TV, smudging rituals, Ouija boards, you know, any right. of that. It's simply telling them to reach out to friends and loved ones who've already died on the other side, uh, reach out to those people, and let them show you the way. And right. sometimes simply leave. Uh, we've been to locations that we've never brought a psychic in. Uh, we'll call the client a week or two later uh, as we start to go over some of the evidence, have some of the stuff, and uh, we'll ask them what's going on. They'll say, hey, whatever you did, it's great because we don't have any phenomena. I said, well, I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I, you know. so my, my opinion of that is that we've given the ghost that opportunity or that spirit to say something, to make right. its final piece, to, to, to right. input something, to get something resolved, and then that's what they needed, then they move on. I have to ask both of you guys, you know, because this is happening a lot, especially for my team. We're constantly getting phone calls now and requests for the, our team to come out and cleanse their home because they already know that it's a demon. Mm. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's where you got too many people watching these TV shows. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Let me tell you just very briefly if I could, if I could start here first. Uh, oh, when, when, when I have a lot of favorite TV shows, you know, that's incredible. Unsolved mystery, sightings, awesome. Awesome. you know, all these locations, all these different ones. Even I don't know if you ever heard this one called The Other Side. Oh my oh, god, yes. I love that show. Yeah, <laughs> I was on that show. I was on that show three times. It was a daily paranormal show. Uh huh. Yeah. And these shows before the modern day ghost hunting place TV shows, they would they would allow you to to go to a location, set up. Do your thing, and if you got it, if you didn't get any evidence, so what? Right. But if you got something, hey, that was always a plus, and that's the way it should be. Right. Now these TV shows, when they first started out, and I'm not going to mention them again, you know the ones I'm talking about. When they first started out, they were ordinary. I like to call them Casper ghosts, just ordinary, friendly spirits and whatever, and that's what it was. Now all of a sudden, there's a major shift. Everything is a demonic, demons, yep. diabolical, possessions, exorcism. Everyone's getting possessed and during the show, turning and I want to kill you. I want to beat you up. This is what the this is what the sponsors want. I get so many calls 
from people and uh, 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 emails from TV shows or per perspective TV shows that they want something like the Amityville Horror, where there's blood coming out of the walls. I said, just that's just not the case. I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can find people that'll lie to be on the TV show. But yep. in reality, that's not the way it is, except for these TV shows. Now, everything on these TV shows is demonic. So that's where I probably think you're getting a lot of calls because they're watching too much TV. Yep. What about yeah, you, David? I, well, I think it's a combination of things. You know, Dale made some really good points. And then on the flip side, we've always had in this field a, a, a much smaller sort of undercurrent of people who take a very religious approach to these things. And, you know, if we look, for instance, at Ed and Lorraine Warren's cases, you know, a lot of those were uh, purportedly more demonic of nature, uh, but certainly nothing like it is in, in modern times where we've got teams all over the country, all over the world, really, who are running out every weekend to investigate, and they immediately decide that the portal of hell is in, you know, some poor woman's basement or, or you know, a kid's bedroom and things like this. There's a new and show about that, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got that. Uh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it, it, for the most part, it, very sadly, it's nonsense, but there is a very tragic side to it, too. And that's that there are a lot of these teams who get called to people's houses, people who genuinely want help. They really want to know what's going on. These teams roll in, and really all they want is attention and something cool to put up on their website in hopes of maybe getting a television show. So, you know, they roll in and they hear a scratching noise in the wall, and they tell these people, oh, you've got, you know, a, a demon's trying to claw its way in from the other side and, and things like this. And, and these are all examples of things I've heard from people who've who've heard this from investigators, and um, you know it's it's such a sad situation because it's people that it's investigators that aren't following any kind of process or protocol or anything else. They're looking for that instant sensation. They're looking for something that's very dramatic, like on television, like Dale says, and you know they lead to these automatic conclusions that oh it, it's got to be demonic, and it, it's not. It's not doing anyone any good service when it comes to you know people who genuinely need or, or want help. Well, if I could interject something in there real quickly, um, one you know I, I've investigated so many different homes and businesses and places across the country. I've been to England twice and Wales. Uh, it's been my experience, at least at least my experience, that of all the cases I've had, I've never come across something negative diabolical, demonic possessions, exorcism. And I think the reason is, is number one, is we screen our cases very carefully. When I talk to people on the phone, I have a big giant four, five page questionnaire that I go through, but I basically want them to tell the story in their own words. So I just start off by saying, get, just give me your general information and then go. You start telling me a story, slow down, let me start writing it down or I'll tape record their conversation and, and do it later. And then I'll go back and I'll say, you sure that's, there's nothing else you did, you know, nothing else you can think of. And then I'll ask specific questions, you know. So that way I'm not leading somebody down a path. That said, oh, by the way, did you hear, did you think there's something very negative going on? Like these TV shows, you always hear that question. 
you think there's something negative. Do you think there's a demon? Of course they're going to say, yeah, it's a TV show. So right. I, you know, what I try to do is make sure that they're just telling their story the way they need to tell it without embellishing it, without going any further. That's why I believe I haven't come across that as far as now, is there something demonic, diabolical? There, there, there very, well, very well may be, but I'll never come across that, nor do I really want anything to do with that. Because if, there, if, there, if you have a belief that there is something negative like that and something diabolical, demonic, well, then your team could be under possibility of being attacked, possessed, have an attachment of some kind, and I wouldn't want that. So I've actually turned down cases in the past that I felt were very negative, and I will say, I will find somebody for you. I will find somebody more seasoned, perhaps in demonology, or maybe you should talk to somebody in the clergy first, or, right. or, or, or contact a shaman, or whatever the case may be, somebody else besides myself to see if that's what it is, you know, before we, we want to get involved. Now, I've always said, too, that, you know, just because it's negative doesn't always mean that it's you have to push the demon button. Right. Uh, as we've always known, that we've met probably a lot of assholes in our life, and they could <laughs> easily be an asshole in death, you know? Absolutely. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, I say the same thing all the time. And, you know, we also have this other factor now with everyone seeking their 15 minutes of fame. Uh, I find that some of these cases that, you know, some of these people that contact me with their cases, uh, it's because they, you know, are hoping that something so bad is happening in their home that'll get them on television. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's sort of the flip side of some of the investigators that want the attention from that kind of drama. So, you know, we get a situation where uh, they're honestly not even open to someone coming in and doing an unbiased investigation because they've already decided exactly right. what's what's you know what they're dealing with, and they're only going to listen to something that addresses that specifically. Well, right. that kind of goes back to my point I was I was making earlier. I mean, you these TV shows, if they search far enough and long enough, if they can't find somebody who's had a legitimate thing, I'm sure they'll find somebody that'll say, "Oh, yeah." I got something going on, even though they Absolutely. have something going on in their house. Because, again, they want, you said, their five minutes, ten minutes of fame on TV. Yes. Now, I mean, I, I don't know if I would want to play with that kind of stuff, because maybe you, you will attract something, you know, heaven forbid, you know, that is something negative. But uh, uh, what you do by doing that, you're not only, you know, falsifying what's going on, but then you're bringing maybe a paranormal team under false pretenses that there's something going on here that they also have to now deal with and because you've already made the show as a negative show they're almost kind of caught into that triangle they got to they just kind of have to go with the flow right right all right let's see uh let's take a break actually real quick join expert paranormal investigator ross allison for a special two-hour excursion of haunted pioneer square highlighting an extra section of the famous underground not featured on the regular Pioneer Square Ghost Tour, plus a guided tour of Spookton Seattle's Death Museum, featuring our collection of morbid curios, Victorian morning wear, haunted dolls, and so much more. Your tour ticket will also entitle you to a 10% discount on the purchase of any one of Ross's books, such as Spookton Seattle, 
Ghostology 101, Tacoma's Haunted History, My Haunted Journal, Haunted Toys, and Haunted Ships and Lighthouses. The Deluxe Tour with Ross is every Friday at 8 p.m. Get your tickets today at spookedinseattle.squarespace.com. You're listening to Paranormal Pioneers with Ross Allison and David Weatherly. All right, so welcome back with Dale, you guys. We've been having a lot of fun with this guy, hearing about his stories and experiences. But, you know, one of the things that we wanted to put together the show was the reason that uh, people don't recognize these individuals that have been doing this a lot longer just because they haven't been or haven't had their own television show. And, and I kind of want to ask that to you, Dale. You know, you've been in this for, for decades now. Um, to us, you've really built a name out there. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of situations where you come across a lot of these younger generations that kind of look at you and go, well, who the hell are you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, when I, when I first started out, you know, I think, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show, uh, some of my very first uh, things I did, and I was literally bombarded when I first came out in 1982. I mean, I was on, uh, I mean, I was on Oprah. I mean, I was on a whole ton of different places uh, here, especially in the Chicagoland area, all the major networks, all, all the major newspapers. It was like a media bliss. I mean, I couldn't even handle it. I had so many things going on. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, and I, I, I it's, it's it's not anybody's fault. It's just a lot of other new upcoming faces start coming in here. And I think eventually what happens is the media, uh, not that they might not recognize you as an authority anymore, is they, they, want, they want some fresh faces in there. So the fresh faces seem to get the, a lot more of the, um, the fanfare, so to speak, for a while until, again, they become old, so to speak, and then, then again, somebody else comes on. And I think that's what really kind of happens here in the paranormal. Um, I mean, when when you start looking at when you start looking at you know people that have done these uh, things for 40, 50 years or plus, uh, and I could name a whole whole handful of these people oh, that yeah. are still into the business doing it, you just don't see them that often, unfortunately. But uh, uh, you, you see these people that, and I always kind of joke sometimes. I say, you know. Uh, I've been doing. I've been involved in 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 this business longer than some of these other celebrity ghost hunters have been on, on the planet. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but that's what you. That's I think where you come to the where you have a celebrity status, and I like to call them like para celebrities. You have para celebrities, and you have paranormal <laughs> investigators. Um, you know the people on TV. I mean, they got a big following of people because they've been on so long. Uh, they have, you know, a big audience and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you go to Las Vegas, I mean, I'm sure some, you know, certain people are very famous out there. I, mean, I know you're talking about, but other groups that are different to their various locations. When you get to Chicago, Chicago being such a big city has got a lot of paranormal groups now. Uh, there was, there was none when we, when I started out, there was not even right. a paranormal here in Chicago. There were individuals like Richard Crow, who was mostly a ghost, uh, like a folklorist. He ran some ghost tours and things of that nature, but never really did much investigating. Uh, now you got more people kind of entering in the field now. So it's like you got, you know, every single uh, geographic section, whether it be north, northwest, southwest, southeast, 
they all got their team. So I think that has a lot of part of, you know, has a lot to do with that uh, uh, discrepancy. Well, it's got to be pretty frustrating for you, you know, as long as you've been in this field to not be, you know, recognized for you for your work and your your research, and to see a lot of these people who we find have no history in this field who just all of a sudden just get a television series and they claim, oh yeah, I've been in this field for you know thirty years, and it's like, well. How come we've never heard of you? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, or people that write books, for instance, and they, they claim in their books that uh, they've been doing it for t 25, 30 years. And I go, and I know, and I know these people personally, and I know, I know when they started, and, and it's, it's just basically a flat-out lie. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have anything really to prove. I mean, I, I mean, if I had to, I could prove a paper trail to going back to show what I've done, but I don't think I need to do that. You know, what I... What I like to stick by is that, you know, I know what I do is legit. I know that I don't uh, have any weird investigative techniques, nor do I fake evidence. Uh, I get lots of compliments when I do investigations. I do a lot of different uh, paranormal conferences. I do a lot of internet radio talk shows like this and other places. So, um, you know, I do get the word out somewhat, maybe not as much as I would like, and it is a bit frustrating, but. but um, yeah, I think eventually, I'm, I'm this year and next year, I'm I'm doing a lot more networking with uh, some other uh, groups here that are uh, very near and dear to me, and so I think we're going to get a lot more exposure here in the city and uh, the Midwest. That's great. That's, that's absolutely great. And I I hear you know the inflated biographies that a lot of people in the field have now it, it really kind of agitates me and you know honestly having been in the field so long i can have a pretty brief conversation with someone and know whether they're genuine or not in their background and i'm sure you can too uh oh, you know yeah. you just it, it becomes clear very quickly and you know, sometimes it's as easy as throwing a name like Hans Holzer or somebody like that in, and they, they give you this puzzled look as if they're trying to remember what television show he's on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's when, but, that's when you know you're talking to a that's younger a good person. One. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, you know, even like you, you know, there are people that I know quite well that have – you know, for whatever reason, decided to exaggerate their background in the field and claim a lot more years than they really have. And, and it's Sorry. it's sad you don't need to do that, uh, no. you know, unless it's just serving your ego or something. But all, all of that aside, taking a, a completely different track, you know, you're talking about Chicago and you're probably like the preeminent researcher in Chicago. It's a big city. It's got a great history. And you know, I know you've done such extensive work there, but give us kind of like a hit list of maybe the top five haunts or, or you know, in, in the Chicago area. Well, two of them we talked about earlier, obviously, Resurrection Cemetery and Bachelors Grove, if you want to talk about cemeteries. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, one place that um, I, I would always tell people to uh, check out if they're in the city is Hull House in downtown Chicago. Uh, the original Jane Addams Settlement House from the 1889. Um, so many strange things have happened there, and from apparitions, uh, a lot of tragedy during uh, the, the the years that uh, leading up to uh, several cholera uh, epidemics in the city of Chicago. Uh, people seeing women dressed in white, shadowy monk-like figures, uh, supposedly a portal in in the uh, 
next to the uh, the building. I mean, I, that's I, that's what I've heard, but I, I really can't verify that. But uh, uh, it's even the, the beginning of what many people believe was the, was the beginning of the story of Rosemary's baby, because in the 1890s, a woman gave birth to a baby that had, according to legend, cloven hooves for feet, a tail and small horns on its head. I was actually able to jump up out of the womb, start smoking a cigar and cussing immediately. Uh, <laughs> so it was circulated by a man who, whose name, name was Ben Heck, kind of an old, uh, uh, kind of a t trashy tabloid type reporter. So that's definitely one, one spot you'd also want, want to uh, check out in the city. Uh, as far as uh, other places here in Chicago, um, Obviously, there are many places that had tragedy associated with them, including the uh, uh, the Iroquois Theater fire in Chicago, which is now the Oriental Theater. In 1903, there was 620 people died in that theater fire. Many of them wow. jumping from balconies and a fire escapes that would not come down. It was either a choice of burning up or jumping, and they jumped into what now is called Death Alley. I actually have an actual brick from Death Alley. It was given to me by one of the theater managers. And that alleyway has been the reports of shadowy figures, the feeling of just uh, despair and dread, and you hear sobbing and crying. Uh, so, so many people died in that theater fire. Uh, not too far away from there would be Chicago's worst disaster, the SS Eastland, uh, both the capsized on the Chicago River between the, uh, uh, between the, uh, along Wacker Drive between LaSalle and Clark Street bridges in 1915. 844 people died in that, in, in that uh, boat accident in, in no more than about 20 feet of water. And there have been all kinds of reports from uh, people hearing a commotion in the water as they're going by the river walk. It's like somebody's struggling to get on. It's a very calm section of the river, but you hear splashing, hear commotion. Other people said that they all of a sudden, the wash of water will come up over the uh, the river walk, like maybe a boat capsizing would have created a big wash of water. Others during daytime, looking at the river, uh, the reflections they see reflections that are not there, are staring back at them. Uh, and many of these victims were actually taken uh, just down the street to what was then called the Second Regiment Armory, which is the biggest building that could store that many bodies because they were overwhelmed. That building later became Harple Studios, where the Oprah Winfrey show was taped. And that building has a lot of activity from uh, people hearing sobbing and moaning sounds, uh, people, a woman dressed in an old um, uh, gray outfit seen, uh, often preceded by a very sharp stench of um, uh, a heavy women's cologne, old fashioned women's cologne. Even uh, on the monitors, uh, the um, security say that they've actually seen figures going up and down the hall hallway. Now, Oprah's moved out of there. It's going to be something else. So it's going to be, again, uh, refurbished and rebuilt upon. But almost immediately when they moved in in 1989, the Oprah show, uh, things began happening almost immediately. So that's wow. just kind of a iceberg in Chicago. But I actually do ghost tours in the city called Excursions into the Unknown. I've been doing them since 1982. The people can actually find out more about that if they ever happen to travel to the city. We run these tours pretty much every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And uh, with more than 350 public places in the city of Chicago to visit, there's a wide variety out there. That's, wow. that, 
That's awesome. I, I got to throw one other thing in there. You know, we all know Chicago, of course, is known for its wonderful pizza. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we've also got, you know, a lot of people associate uh, Al Capone with Chicago. And, uh, you know, what about a couple of the, the more famous kind of mob-oriented hauntings in the, in the city? Sure. Well, at 2122 North Clark Street, which which is the, the site of the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre, oh, which yes. happened on February 14, 1929, seven members of the Bugs Moran gang were shot down by uh, Al's thugs, basically. Al was sunning himself in Florida and had hired henchmen, probably machine gun Jack McGurn and others, kill those people. People have actually heard sobbing and moaning sounds, the, the sound of automatic gunfire coming from Chicago. Uh, from that area, and even dogs walking past her, sometimes even highly trained canine patrols kind of shy away. They whimper with their tail between your legs like you're sensing something. Uh, wow. A little bit further on the north side, uh, not very far actually, um, is the Biograph Theater where John Dillinger was uh, gone yes. in 1934. Uh, yeah. uh, he was, uh, of course, betrayed by a woman named uh, uh, Ann Copangas, or uh, uh, she was. Supposedly the infamous lady in red, but she was actually wearing kind of an orchid-colored dress. And when she came out of the theater, they knew that was Dillinger. Dillinger made a, uh, a run for the alley, never made it. Had a uh, bullet hit him in the in the uh, in the head, basically come out of his right eye, right below his right eye, it was a fatal bullet wound. Uh, immediately, people knowing that this was something special started to dip their handkerchiefs in the blood. And many people still have those bloody handkerchiefs to this day they never washed, which is kind of gross, but it's kind of a souvenir. People have actually seen a, a shadowy silhouette come out of the theater, running towards the alleyway, falling, tripping, hitting the pavement, and vanishing from sight. Um, we know that Al Capone also, for a while, was a, a whole, uh, his headquarters was the infamous Lexington Hotel on mm -hmm. Cermak Road. And uh, if you remember back in the 1980s, the famous uh, documentary by Geraldo Rivera called The Mystery, Vault. Mystery yes. of the Pones yeah, Vault yeah. right there. But they thought that this vault had unprofessionally poured walls that were 18 feet thick. And they right. don't pour walls 18 feet thick. They thought there had to be bodies, treasures, uh, loot, paintings or something. All they found was a beer bottle and an old sign. Uh, but, uh, it, it was crazy, but uh, th what they did find is that this place was honeycombed with subterranean passageways, secret doors, secret rooms, uh, secret staircases that Al could get out of there without going out the front door. So if somebody came for him, he could duck into one of these secret passages, come up, pop out of a manhole cover in the alley about a block away, wish the way in a limousine, and he'd be gone. Wow. Uh, so, Amazing. yeah, there's quite a bit of places. There's even a place uh, called uh, Mount Olivet Cemetery uh, where he was originally buried when he died. He was later moved to Mount Carmel Cemetery to be buried in the entire plot by himself with his entire family nearby. And wow. they said that uh, if you come out there in the middle of the night, at least teenagers used to do that in the 1980s and drink beer on Al Capone's grave, if you disrespect his grave in some way, shape, or form, an angry apparition of Al will suddenly appear and chase you away. Also for, that, also for people that are interested in historic markers in that uh, is Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, Mrs. O'Leary's uh, cow kicked over the barn, supposedly, inside Chicago LaBlaze. They are also yeah. buried in that cemetery. 
Wow. Now, uh, Jake, our producer, is from Chicago, and he is also a big fan of yours. So I have to ask, Jake, do you have any questions? Oh, wow. I have some. I, I could go on and on. <laughs> you it, get one. <laughs> oh, okay, so we'll just talk since we're on the subject of haunts. My absolute favorite haunt in Chicago, and I stay there every time I go, is the Congress Plaza Hotel. And you don't really get to hear so much about people doing investigations, though I think it's on a murder mystery tour or something like that now. But Dale, what do you have to say about the ghosts of the Congress Plaza? Well, of course, you got to remember that any of these big hotels uh, back during the 20s and 30s uh, probably had some sort of gangster clientele in them. Uh, the old Metropole Hotel, the Lincoln Hotel, the Congress Plaza Hotel, the old Blackstone Hotel. A lot of these places had because they were the they were the riskiest place in Chicago at that time, and these gangsters they had they had more money than probably the president of the United States back then because they were making money the, the illegal way, you know, gambling, prostitution, drugs, whatever. And uh, so, in the Congress Plaza Hotel, there's there's been reports of uh, apparitions seen in the hallways because of apparently at least one person that was shot in the hallway in the vestibule, one uh, a, a gangster. Uh, the name escapes you right off the top of my head. But we often know that when we have untimely deaths, people that are shot, killed, you know, mowed down, drive-by shootings, drownings, plane crashes, train wrecks, that they might, realize, might not realize that they have passed on. And that's why ghosts appear in the first place, because one moment you're here, the next moment you're gone, you still think you're alive, you still think you're walking around doing things that you love, and that's how people perceive you. Wow. So on that note, I do have to ask one last question. What is it that you want to be remembered for? Wow. All in one sentence, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. I guess uh, for being a, a, a fair and honest researcher that kind of came up through the ranks uh, of old school paranormal, uh, was able to adapt to some of the newer kind of fringe techniques that uh, later became more, uh, you know, what we call today, you know, tools that are made for this uh, paranormal, but also somebody that um, basically trains people to do things that are not sensational. Basically, you're going out there, you're treating ghosts with great respect, you're, you're not provoking, uh, you're not... Uh, uh, using any strange, crazy things like rituals, Ouija boards, and things of that nature, which we don't use. If you go to our site, you can actually see our methodology and protocols on our website. So I guess I'd like to be remembered as just somebody who does things the old-fashioned way, but has also been able to adapt to the new methods of today. That's awesome. And, and I, thank I you for saying, I was going to say, yeah. thank, thank you for being true to your craft. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I think your legacy is firmly in in place at this point. And uh, that being said, you know, please uh, tell everyone where to find you online, your your websites, and uh, also let us know if you have any any new projects coming up, any new books, anything in the pipeline we can we can watch for. Uh, well, you can say, first of all, they can contact me through my website at www.ghostresearch. Dot org. It's ghostresearch.org. Uh, I'm also on Facebook 
Uh, you can Google me on Facebook or check me out on Facebook. I also have a Ghost Research Society page. Uh, we are always looking for new people to join the group. So if you're local to this area, southern Wisconsin, northwest Indiana, or throughout Chicago, uh, we always are looking for new, motivated, uh, dedicated people to join the group. Um, as far as projects, we have a lot of things going on. We're going to be traveling to the Sally House in Atkinson, Kansas uh, in uh, late, late July. Uh, we also have um, uh, a trip to the Fowler Theater that we're going to be doing in Fowler, Indiana in August, as well as a road trip uh, to Robinston, downstate Illinois, to uh, meet my, my great friends down there and Jason Snyder and Crawford County Ghost Hunters. We're also going to be traveling out to Bel Air, Ohio, to investigate the Bel Air House um, and uh, doing a couple things in Rockford as well. So, I mean, we got a really tight agenda for the rest of this year. and. Next year in 2020, we're going to be heading back to Gettysburg. Um, awesome. I will be appearing at, uh, for those that are interested, at uh, Kathy Kressel's Haunted Rockford event in Rockford. Uh, that You'll be able to see me out there on September 28th. You can go to hauntedrockford.com. And uh, also a Tinker Swiss event that we're doing, a public event on uh, July 19th that you can actually sign up for and investigate with our group. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, again, Dale, thanks so much for being on with us. It's, it's always a pleasure, and uh, especially talking to someone with such an extensive background and really one of the true paranormal pioneers that we still have with us. Yes, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it, and it was a uh, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, uh, that's all I can say. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, and uh, I. I I'm think we got the out of them I'm all we could. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we got everything out of them that we could. He's speechless now. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> oh, cool. Thanks for listening to Paranormal Pioneers with Ross Allison and David Weatherly. Tune in every third Thursday at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific to hear more from Paranormal Powerhouses. Only on Crimson Cloak Radio.